Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast series explores the theme of second chance. We raise questions about who deserves a second chance, who decides who gets a second chance, and what a second chance actually means. We speak to people from all walks of life about their experiences, including those who have been given a second chance, and some who you might believe are beyond deserving a second chance. In this episode, my guest is David Martindale, the first team coach and manager of Scottish Premier League football club Livingston FC. Talking football is something I enjoy, but on this occasion, we're talking about David's connection to organised crime, prison, cocaine, and turning his life around to become a successful first team coach. I don't think there's another coach out there, probably in the world, with a story like David's. So it makes for a fascinating listen. And it's important because it demonstrates that you can turn your circumstances around and in the process change people's perceptions and the stigma that often floats around people because of their past mistakes or decisions in life. The first thing I wanted to ask is about your upbringing and your your talent as a young footballer, because I read as a young man, you were very talented at football and were at Rangers and other clubs. Tell me a little bit about your your career as a young footballer, wanting to be a footballer, how that started. I'd always kind of blessed with football and ability. That probably got me my social status and the scheme where I grew up. I was originally born in Govan and we moved through to Livingston, which was an overspill from Glasgow. It was a it was a town that got built for the overcrowding in Glasgow and Edinburgh, and it's situated right between Edinburgh and Glasgow. So I moved through when I was about eight years old to Livingston and spent the majority of my life up to I was around 30 years old, something like 22 years in Livingston. 
So I played a lot of community football. I was one of the better footballers in the scheme. It probably gave me my social status in the scheme through being one of the better footballers. But on the flip side of that, it probably brought attention on me and opened me up to different areas within the scheme, to be honest. I'm a big believer now, with hindsight, you're a product of your environment. And that was probably me. I'm not going to say I had a bad upbringing. I had food on the table, I had clothes on my back and I had a roof over my head. But I, I would definitely say we had a impoverished upbringing. You were always, you always strived for the better trainers, to have a tracksuit, to have a ball, that type of thing. So I'd probably, again, looking back, but bit of hindsight, I think a lot of criminality comes from poverty or it's poverty driven from somewhere you're masking masking life's problems through taking drugs, taking alcohol. Or, but I think it all starts from some sort of poverty at some stage in your life. They say sport is a way out of that, and and obviously, be uh, for some people, whether it's music, whether it's sport, whether it's something else. Why wasn't it the way out for you at such a young age? I mean, what went wrong? If what went wrong is the right way of saying it, I think um, I was loyal to the scheme. I kept playing football. I had opportunities to leave the teams in the local area and go further afield, go and play for the bigger teams in Glasgow, go and play for the bigger teams in Edinburgh, and I kept playing with my boys' club teams in Livingston. Rangers then opened a camp in the Livingston area and I got chosen. We went, it was about 100 kids and we were all training for weeks at a time and then it was four or five years got pulled into a room and said, look, we want to keep you on board. So I then started with training with Rangers in the community, got invited through to train with uh, the bigger squads in Glasgow because it was different pods all over the place. Um, and I was with Rangers and I stayed... I stayed still in Craig's Hall. It's a scheme in Livingston. And my pals all played like amateur football, pub football, so to speak. And every Sunday I'd get a chap in the door, oh, John's no turn up, Joseph's no turn up, we need you to play for this, Davey. Right, OK. So I'd get the books on, go and play. Obviously I wasn't allowed to play, but it was probably, I wasn't there a lot of discipline in my life at that point. I was probably 15, 15, 16, something along that around that age and I went and played done that on and off for a couple of years and one time I, I went and I broke my leg I snapped my leg my fibia and my tibia I think it was around 17 at that point and um, no 16 I think I was I think Rangers were talking about giving me a YTS to get me in in a young training scheme and um, I broke my fibia and my tibia and that was me out of football for about 18 months and it's probably that point in my life where I never had that Saturday. I never had my training two nights a week on the Saturday that my life probably took, I'm going to say, a more sinister turn, albeit I was probably involved in some kind of criminality, illegality from an early age of 14 when we grown up in the scheme. I just, it was normal for me, but I felt normal and it's not an excuse, but it was what we done. It's what we all done in the scheme. Or it's what we done when we the get the gangy people or the gang that I hanged around in. What kind of criminality was you involved in at, at, at that point? I mean, there's street criminality. What sort of criminality was you involved in? I remember like stealing wheel trims off cars, that type of thing, car radios, that kind of thing. So it wasn't it probably anything that you would call major, 
But again, it was a stepping stone to other things. That's what it was. But it was a lot of gang culture for the age of probably 14. There was a lot of gang culture involved in the scheme where I grew up. Knife crime and criminality. I'm looking at wheel trims and stereos. But when you look back, I think I personally have been stabbed, slashed two or three times when I was growing up. And that was just coming through for gang culture fighting local schemes all fighting with one another but kind of that that was normalised for me that's what we've done we talk about today when we talk about knife crime or we talk about criminality we talk about mentors people being in people's lives whether it's parents whether it's people who have different aspirations who, who was around you and your friends at the time I mean you, you know at 16 it's very difficult to listen to anybody but was there anybody at that point sort of leading you down the right kind of do the right yeah. thing David no, my mum my mom and dad tried. Um, I kind of left my house, my family home when I was 15. Moved in with one of my friends. Not officially, kind of unofficially. Stayed out, stayed there four or five nights a week. Hit 16, there wasn't a lot your parents can do with that point anyway. And so the people that we looked up to was the people within the scheme, the older people within the scheme, the boys driving the BMWs, the boys driving the Range Rovers. How did they get that? They were all kind of higher up the pecking order in the criminal circle, for want of a better word. That was more or less who we looked up to, who I looked up to, rather than probably role models and your mum and dad and other people in your life. We just, the gang was my family at that age for about 14. I'm trying to think, maybe around 20, 21, something along those lines that... The gang that you hang, that was the family. You were loyal to the scheme. You were loyal to your friends within that scheme, which was ultimately a gang. At some point, you, you got involved in slightly more serious criminality, um, which culminated. And I don't know whether during your younger years, you had brushes with the law, in other words, caught for doing the little things that you were doing. Did you serve any time in young offenders institutions or whatever they were called then? Had you been arrested and gone through the criminal justice system, you know, and wasn't that a deterrent when you were so young? Probably not. When I was four, uh, 15, we used to, it was a local scheme, and we used to just fight. That's what we'd done at the weekends. You used to drink and then you used to go over and the two groups of males would fight. That's what we'd done. Gradually that would escalate and it would be bats and then it would be knives. That's what we'd done. It was normal. At 15, I got arrested with a lot of the older boys that are from the scheme with me and uh, for breach of the peace. And it was it was basically gang fighting. And um, I got put in a young offenders institution, Pullman Young Offenders Institution, for three months. Came out. It was a shock to the system. I'd just turned 16. Just turned 16, but the crime happened when I was 15. But I remember not going to court until I turned 16. Um, I was in for two months. It was a massive shock to the system. But again, when you get put into a young offenders institution back in those days anyway, I've just turned 16. It's probably heightens the gang culture, the criminality. You're in there with like-minded people. You've got to have your wits about you. You've got to be able to look after yourself. So it probably... It adds to that experience, if that makes sense. It normalises why you're in prison or a young offenders institution anyway. And I got out and I can remember I had various jobs, painter, decorator, welder, different jobs. But at weekends, again, you're maybe out fighting, out fighting with 
the different schemes, the gang culture again, and you've been charged with the police, and you're in the, you're maybe in the prison cell, and you're up at court on Monday morning, and you've lost your job. So that was kind of the vicious circle that I was caught in at that point. And again, uh, it was you're a product of your environment. But I definitely think my loyalty and my social status in the scheme probably meant more to me than other aspects of my life. Maybe try to educate myself, get myself a job and my family, my mum, my dad, my brother, my sister. It was a loyalty to the scheme and my friends that probably helped drive that desire to be successful. It, it, it's such a, an interesting challenge, isn't it? Because it sounds like at one point you were trying to do the right thing. You were trying to sort of change the direction in your life. But the pull of, of the gang culture, the pull of the criminal lifestyle, when people don't understand that, David, it's very difficult for them to get their head around, isn't it? Because they think, well, you had plenty of opportunities. Maybe you shouldn't do that. But they don't make the connection between the, the, the childhood that and the environment that you were growing up in, and people just can't seem to get their head around them. Why do you think that is? I can I can actually understand it because there's probably, I'm sitting here talking about me and my group of friends, but there was also another group of friends that went to university and done well. So it's really, really difficult to explain, but growing up, did I ever think university was an option for David Martindale? At no point in my life did I know I could go to university I relied on my footballing ability. That was always the one, you'll be a footballer, you'll be a footballer. So academically, I probably wasn't as focused, well, I wasn't as focused as I should have been. 100% I wasn't as focused. I went to school to play football, not to learn academically. Um, So I can understand why folks see that, but it's not until you're in that environment and you understand, I don't know, the pool, or it's not even maybe so much the pool, you're sitting, I was talking about this yesterday with someone, you're sitting as a youngster watching television, The Godfather, The Sopranos, Blow, these are all films we watched growing up that on the telly to us were the be-all and end-all, these were successful people and this is how you became successful. That was the films we watched growing up. Uh, you go back to football casuals, gang fighting, these were all the films in what is late 80s, early 90s. These were the hype, and these were the films that we watched. So, indirectly by watching these films, it probably it probably fuels your fire to be successful in the same manner of what you're watching something on a television or the movie. And I think people don't understand that, that you never had iPads at that point, stuff like that. Academically, it was gone. That avenue was gone. I'd burnt the bridges. I wasn't going to be a professional footballer. So subconsciously, I probably felt that I never had a, a skill set to do anything else. And my skill set was being in the scheme. It's so interesting because you're absolutely right. What you're exposed to often dictates who you become to some extent. And if you're not exposed to the academic world, you know, if your parents or the, your, your peer group are not interested in going to college or university, it won't be of interest to you. I read that um, in 2004, 2006, it was a point in your life where you were involved in, it's been described in some papers as organised crime, to the point that you were involved in cocaine trafficking, which led to a very severe sentence. Tell me a bit about how that came about. So I think, like, every believe it or not, I've never really been one to take drugs. Growing up in the scheme, I was always the one that probably never took drugs. All my friends used to, I've dabbled when I was younger, magic mushrooms, acid, all this type of thing. But 
most of like eighty percent of my friends all smoke cannabis. Like everybody in to this day, people I grew up with who live normal lives, got jobs, they probably still do the same things. They're just doing it with a, a wife and two kids, three kids. So I think you were in, you are exposed to drugs. The older you get in the in the scheme, you're exposed to drugs. Like the local pub where we um, all used to congregate when we were eighteen plus, probably a wee bit younger than that. The local pub was. You'd walk in the local pub and there'd be cocaine on the table, there'd be cannabis on the table. It was normal. I didn't, I genuinely, honestly never thought this isn't right. And it was all people from the scheme that drank in that pub. So I think you get exposed to it. In 2004, I had pubs, I, I did break that cycle. I did break the cycle, got away from the scheme, moved away. I had a wee boy and I think that was the turning point in my life to try and get out of the scheme, moved to a a more affluent area within Livingston that's so my son wasn't growing up in the scheme. Um I managed to get a couple of pub franchises. I ran pubs for probably around four years for two thousand to two thousand and four. We got in a bit of financial difficulty. I had liquid cash in the pub business. I had still friends that I'd kept in touch with, friends that drank in the pub. And um I needed money, and for, for no want of a better word, it was sheer greed. It was sheer greed. That was that was the motivation factor for me was greed. If I gave somebody X amount of money in a couple of weeks' time, I was going to get X amount back. And that probably started off very low, and then it increased as time went on. And that's basically what happened to me. I got arrested in 2004 for being concerned in the supply of drugs. It wasn't till I was in the prison system that I actually realised what I was doing, how wrong it was, the impact that what I was doing had on had victims because I grew up watching people for Hollywood movies taking cocaine and my moral standards or my flexible moral standards, how a social worker described it later on, dictated to me that you talk yourself into it, it's, it's okay, it's only a wee bit of cocaine. Everybody does it. Everybody in the telly does it. It's a it's a cool drug. It wasn't until I went to prison later on in 2006 that you see the impact cocaine abuse has. People selling or involved in cocaine. Um, so 2004, I got arrested. April 2004, and I remember lying in the prison cell in London Road in Glasgow. It was Easter weekend, actually. Got arrested on the Friday, and I got out on bail on the Tuesday. And they four nights in London Road. Well, what were you actually arrested for? This is for the importation or selling of drugs? Concerned in the supply of drugs. So concerned in the supply of drugs at that point. What I actually got charged with was being involved with concerned in the supply of drugs. Six kilograms, but it was three separate two kilograms times over a six-month period. So that's, What's the street value? What would the street value of that be? See, people talk about that, and at that point, I don't know. I think, I think how the papers and the media talk that up. They talk about street value, but if you're if you're buying something that's wholesale, you're not selling. I wasn't. I was putting money in for the purchase of that. I wasn't wholesaling. I never sold drugs, and I'm not saying that makes it any better. It doesn't. It doesn't. I was involved in the concern to supply drugs. So when it came to the selling or the purchasing, it was really nothing to do with me. I was just the middleman who was putting money up front to help someone purchase drugs. I don't know what the street value was. Probably, I'd imagine, £100,000 per kilogram, something along the lines. 
And that's what I got charged with, being concerned in supply of drugs, six kilograms, three, two, two kilograms, at three separate occasions over a six-month period, and that's what I served my prison sentence for. There's a lot of stuff in the, the media you'll read. Money laundering, I've never been charged with money laundering in my life, but it's just lazy journalists picking up a story. So that's what I went to prison for. And, and it's so good that you say that because it's exactly what I read this morning, you know, uh, 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 cocaine trafficking, money laundering, proceeds of crime, organised crime. It all sounds very soprano-y, but the reality is very different from you who was living it and the people around you. But as you say, lazy journalism can sometimes paint a very different picture. How, how long did you get sent to prison for? I went to prison for six and a half years. Don't get me wrong, Raphael, I did. Once I got found guilty of the concerns and supply of drugs, I did get done with the proceeds of crime after that. Because at that point, there's been a guilty, there's been a criminal offence, so the proceeds of crime came after that. So I did the proceeds of crime. But proceeds of crime isn't isn't a charge in itself. It's, a, it's something that happens directly after you've been found guilty of a criminal offence. And this was the authorities confiscating your your earnings because they, they assume that it came from your involvement in drugs? Yes. So what they basically do, this is how it works. And people will not really understand this. I could have made something along the lines of £50,000 for being involved in conserving the supply of drugs. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I bought my house with legal money. It doesn't matter if I bought my car with legal money. I had four businesses at that point, and it was all cash businesses. It doesn't matter. So they come in and they value up your house, your car, your bank accounts, my son's bank accounts, my partner's bank accounts. They come in and value that up, and they say, Mr. Martindale has got assets worth £250,000. You get hit with your proceeds of crime for £250,000. It's then on you to prove that that wasn't. Now, at that stage, it was very in the infinite stages of the proceeds of crime because that was in 2004. It was, I basically got every single legal or illegal penny I had made. And do you know what? I understand why I've not I've not got any negativity towards that how it was done because I think it's correct. But they just take every single thing that's an asset, they take it off, you shut your bank accounts down, can't pay your mortgage, you can't sell your house, you've got no legitimate means of income. And my businesses were on franchises where the breweries, the breweries just come down and shut the franchises. So they take they just freeze every single asset you've got. That's basically what the proceeds of crime is leaving you with nothing, and you're in prison doing this six-and-a-half-year sentence. Well, that happens for two four. When you get charged, you get a restraining order put in all your assets. I think people understand it a lot more now because it's in the papers a lot more. So in 2004, when I got charged, they just put a restraining order on everything. In two, October 2006 is when I got sentenced. I was on bail for two-and-a-half years. In October 2006, when I got found guilty, well, I pled guilty. When I pled guilty to it, that's when they come and then physically try to dispose of your assets. But it's not the, the police or the Crown who dispose of it, it's you. You've just got to find that number. So that original number of your assets, £250,000, you've gone, then got to pay that £250,000 back, but you need, the, you need the Crown's permission to sell your house, to sell the car, to take the money out of all your bank accounts. So that's basically what happened. What really... The frustrating part of that was when my house got valued in 2004, it was kind of at the boom of the property market. 
when we sold the house in 2009 with the Crown's permission. The house was it lost £100,000. And this is what people don't understand. I still had to find that money somewhere. And that, that haunted me up until last year. I was still paying, still basically paying a fine. If I had any assets when I came out of prison, the Crown came back and took it off me until you settle that financial settlement figure. So... And were you not able to prove, because as you say, you were running pubs, you had a franchise, were you not able to prove that much of your assets had actually come from legitimate yes, you work? you prove that, but you don't actually go through that to 2006. So I remember sitting in Glen, uh, Berlin, it was Berlin prison at the time in 2006, been sentenced to six and a half years. And you know all I wanted for 2004 was closure? All I wanted for 2004 was closure to move on with my life. And in 2006, my lawyer came to see me and he said the Crown's willing to drop, uh, it was like 350 originally or 275 originally, the Crown's willing to take 250, £250,000. You're not going to have to court. This is the end date, David. And I remember sitting there and saying, but if the house doesn't sell for what they expected it to sell for 2004, uh, jewellery, bank account, stuff like that, the car, where does the difference come from? Oh, don't worry, they're not going to come back. But by the time I'd came out of prison, the law had changed again. And the law now meant that they could come back and visit historical cases. And I was one of the first ones to get hit with this new, the new regulation, basically, whereas once you'd sold everything, and it, I think I sold everything, and it came to roughly around £130,000, there was £130,000, £40,000 still outstanding, Theoretically, what should have happened is that should have been wiped clean, but they don't. They, were, they kept coming back. So for me to order to progress my life, I've awarded a mortgage. So that's what I've done. I was out working for four or five years, and then my wife at that point, we put a deposit down in a house, which we'd both, we'd both been working. They basically just came, and the house had went up in value in a two-year period. They just came back and took my 50% out of the house, came back. It was a brown envelope under the door one day saying you owe me £40,000 because your houses went up in £80,000 in value. And that basically happened to me on two or three occasions over the last maybe four years. Now, I'm not sitting here looking for sympathy, but that's just the harsh reality of committing crime. It just doesn't disappear when you come out of prison now. The, the law and the crown... They're there and um, they'll keep looking for you and they'll keep trying to get your assets until you satisfy that original figure that you get hit with when you get charged with your crime. So hopefully it's a it's a lot more of a deterrent now than what it was previously. What was it like in prison for you? How did you cope? I just kind of treated it as an, a positive. It was, again, I was in on bail for two, uh, two, and a half, two and a half years, see getting sentenced. It was actually a bit of closure for me. I could see light at the end of the tunnel. For two and a half years, I used to go to bed and the last thing I would think about was going to prison. The first thing I would think about was going to prison. My wife, my partner at that time would go to work. I'd take my, my son to school and I would go away to university because in two four, I enrolled in university because I knew I had to change my life. And I was at university for two and a half years before I got in prison. So between April 2004 and October 2006, I enrolled at a local university and a project management degree and I was going to university. So when I actually got sentenced, it was a bit of closure. 
it was a wee bit of closure in my life that we could all move on. I tried to treat prison as difficult as it is. I tried to treat prison as a positive, and every day was a day closer to my freedom, a day closer to being with my family. How how long of those six and a half years did you spend in prison? Well, I'd done three months before I got sentenced as well, so it was I was in prison roughly for um, three and a half years. That's a long time, isn't it? That's a chunk out of your life. Were you able to continue the degree that you were studying in prison? Not when I was in closed conditions, so I don't know whether it's... Are you based in England, Raphael? Yeah, London, yeah. I don't know how the English system works. But in the Scottish system, as you progress and you're a good prisoner, you've got the opportunity to move to open conditions. So after, I think it was like two and a bit years, two and a half years, two years, three months, something along the lines... I progressed to the open system and the, the open prisons, basically, to reintegrate you into reintegrating back into your family and society's life because they feel by doing this, you've got a better chance of staying out of prison. And I agree with, I agree with that pathway one million percent. So in the open prison, I used to, it was called North Inside and it was in Forfa. I would go to prison for three weeks, but I'd have a placement outside the prison but I'd return to prison every day. I'd go out and work in the local community. And I'd done that for three weeks and every Wednesday. So every fourth Wednesday, you would get out of prison for a week and you'd go and stay in the family home to reintegrate you back into your family life. And while I, on my first home leave, we call it, I went along to the university and asked to speak to the, the lecturer who provided a character reference for me going to court. And fortunately enough, he, he pulled out everything he could to help me and he got me back into a kind of bespoke system for David Martindale. He got me enrolled back into where I left off and every every fourth Wednesday I'd go to university, pick a USB up and give him my USB that I'd been previously working on. I'd go back to prison the following Wednesday, give the guards in the prison my USB, they would check there wasn't any illicit material on it. And I'd be able to go to the education suite for three weeks. Never had the internet, had a couple of books. So it was really difficult because you never had that lecture or peer support. And I would just work away through this USB and then go back out again, hand it in, get another one. I'd done that for around 13 months. I got released for prison in January 2010. And the following Monday, if I got out on the Tuesday, the following Monday, the university accepted me back in as a full-time student. And I spent roughly another 14 months as a full-time student at Harriet Watt University. And I graduated with a 2-1 honours degree in construction project management. I think it was around 2012, around 2012. So from enrolling in the course in August 2004, I managed to get my honours degree roughly, roughly about the June 2012. And how old were you at this point? Oh, 2012. 10 years, 37 year old. So a mature student with yeah. determination. And it, it sounds like that most of what you were able to achieve from the moment that you were sentenced was driven by your own desire to change your life. When you when you reflect back at the other prisoners that were around you, what, what, what do you think about, um, and I know the Scottish prison system is slightly different from here in the UK, but What's your reflections now, David, when you look back at the guys that were around you and the chances that, that they and the opportunities that were being afforded to those guys? Do you think it's good enough, exist at all? No, not 100%. There's some fantastic people working in the prison system, but 
budget-wise and resources, I can see why repeat offending happens. I understand why it. I remember going into prison thinking heroin was a dirty drug. Anybody that didn't do it, heroin's a, for want of a better word, a scumbag. Anybody that's involved in cocaine was cool. It wasn't long into the prison system that you realise the two drugs are absolutely horrendous for local communities. The indirect effect that they have on families and users is it's unbelievable. But again, with the flexible moral compass, you talk yourself into it. It's okay, I've seen it on the telly. It wasn't that I got in the prison system, started sharing cells with heroin addicts, all different types of people. And there's always some sort of trauma. If you dig deep enough, there's always some sort of trauma as to why people are in, addicted to drugs, why people are selling drugs. And I'm not saying it's okay why all this has happened. It's not an excuse. But if you dig deep enough, there's always a reason why. I remember spending time with people that are lifers, so people that would be sentenced to 25 years, maybe maybe done 15 years of their sentence and they're getting out, and you're like, look, get out, keep your head down. And within two weeks, they're back in prison. Like, why are you back in? They're going out to nothing. They've got absolutely nothing. They've been in prison. And I'm not looking for people to feel sorry for sympathy for these people. 100% I'm not. I'm just trying to tell you the harsh reality of it for someone that's been there and done that. You would see them coming back in. Why are you back in? I get three meals a day, a roof over my head, and I'm hot. I've got heating. And they would go and smash a window because they're on a life licence. This is what people forget. Oh, you got out after 15 years. They're on a life licence. That's what life means. It doesn't mean you go to prison for life. But the support network, if you've not got that family network outside, it's going to, the vicious circle's going to come in. You're going to fall into that vicious circle and you're going to reoffend. And I was fortunate. I was fortunate in respect. When I went to prison, I wasn't a drug addict because I think it would be really, really difficult to go through the prison system if you're a drug addict being in prison because the prisons are awash with drugs. They're awash with drugs. There's people going to prison, never touch a drug and come out heroin addicts because it's how they escape from the reality of the situation. So I wasn't a drug addict and I was fortunate enough that I wasn't lying in a ditch involved in concerned in supply of drugs, involved in organised crime for want of a better word so I was fortunate, I was one of the lucky ones, I understood that I needed a way out and I started preparing that way out in 2004 after my arrest but I was fortunate that I had the academic ability to change my life a lot of these people remember going to prison, they're probably not got a great skill set They've probably not done well at school. They've not got the academic ability. And I'm not trying to say you've got to feel sorry for them. I don't, because everybody's got choices in life to make. It's just sometimes you don't feel that you've got choices in life to make. You don't see the other side of life or the other choices that are potentially there for you. How did, when you come out of prison, the degree in construction management help you keep on moving forward and not look back? Although you always are going to reflect on the things you've experienced, the things you've seen, and you use that to propel you moving forward. But how did your degree help you move forward? It gave me a wee bit of self-worth. Here's David Martindale, like, I've got a degree. I've got a degree so I can go and get a job now. Hopefully people can... I can get accepted into society. I can get a job. I can earn legit as a legitimate way to earn money other than criminality. So I felt that self-worth. I also think it gave people, obviously people stigmatise you coming out of prison. 
it maybe helps change that perception of you. Before someone knows you, they maybe read your CV and go, oh, he's got a degree. This is why he's got a degree and this is how he done his degree. So it maybe gives you a wee bit of an opportunity with people from first impressions, opposed to someone who's just coming out for a prison sentence looking for employment. I think once people get to know me, they, they understand that not everybody in prison is stigmatised and not everybody in prison is a bad person. I thought that before I went to prison, that everybody in prison was scumbags are no very nice people. The diversity within the prison system is incredible. The different types of people within a prison system is incredible. I just felt a wee bit of self-worth, my self-esteem, and I, I had a way out. This bit of paper gave me a way out. How did you shake off your old scheme friends and people because even I mean even today I'm sure there are people in your life who still have criminal kind of tendencies because you can never shake that off I do everybody does because you can't shake that world off but it takes a hell of a lot of discipline and as you say self-worth to sort of say you know what I'm not tempted by that lifestyle or I think I took myself away for the scheme probably around 2000 1998 so I wasn't indirectly involved in being in the scheme I was running my own businesses the scheme came immediately because of the public houses I have, the pubs I had. So that kind of came to me at that point. I took myself away from the scheme. I'd moved houses. I had a young son. So I understood that I didn't want my young son growing up where I grew up. So I took myself away from the scheme indirectly, albeit I still had contact with people within the scheme. But it wasn't ingrained. It wasn't a bigger part in my life as what it previously was. Um, and then in, obviously... 2004 getting arrested, that, that was a huge turning point in my life. Huge turning point. And it's, it's not long. You go to prison and you can count in one hand how many people were there for you within your prison sentence. I probably had 50 of what, just using a number, just using a number. People for the scheme, friends for the scheme, business associates. You're lucky. You're lucky if 10% of the people 10% of the people kept in touch with me and helped me out during my prison sentence. And the only people that did was my family. So that probably reset my mindset as well. I had a massive reset button in my life going through the prison system. So when you come out, you've got a totally different attitude, totally different attitude. And I, I then was able to evaluate my life and understand what was important in my life. And what I found was important was my family not my loyalty to the scheme. How did your life go from earning the degree to moving towards football? So I was involved in construction, obviously project management, and actual step was construction. And even when I had the pubs, I dabbled in property and construction, redevelopment, dabbled with it, was always quite keen that had a good eye for it, good with my hands, but the degree gave me the the expertise or the experience, so to speak, for people to take me serious. Football's always played a massive part in my life. The only probably time it never played a massive part in my life is about probably 18, maybe not, sorry, tell like 16 to 19, 16 to 20-year-old, that leg break, getting in and out of football. But it's always played a huge part. So when I came back out, I'd always kept playing football. And I was playing, up until 2004, I was probably playing me boys that are from the scheme, we a pub that's from the scheme, we a local amateur team that was from the scheme. When I got arrested in 2004, I changed changed totally and I went to play at a different level of football, away from playing football with my friends. 
I'd always had all their teams go, come and play for us, you're too good to be playing that level. But again, loyalty to the scheme, loyalty to my friends. So I actually changed that in 2004 after my race and I started playing junior football, it was called. So a wee bit like the National League in England. So I started playing a different level of football and that actually opened me up to a different social environment, a different social circle of friends as well. So I'd always been involved and I fell back into that side of it. So it's like semi-professional football when I came out of prison. And one of my friends was working as a volunteer at Living, Livingston with the community side of the football club. And the club were in a lot of financial difficulties at this point. And they were looking for people to come in and help. So I came in. I used my building knowledge. I'd done a lot of work at the club free. I provided tradesmen, stuff like that. And for that, I said, well, I wouldn't mind getting involved in the coaching side of it because I was coaching. As soon as I came out of prison in 2010, I think I was playing football the following Saturday and coaching. Back, I fell into what I'd left that life in 2004. Between 2004 and 2006, I just picked back up in 2010. So I was coaching and playing semi-professional football. And I said, well, would it be possible if I come in a couple of days a week and monitor first-team training? And I was very fortunate that the manager and the assistant manager at that point said, yeah, we're open to that. And I came in for a year at Livingston, picked cones up on a Tuesday morning and a Thursday morning. Picked cones up, went to the game on a Saturday, was in the dugout on a Saturday and just helped out. And they needed balls blown up, I'd go and put blow. But I'd done whatever they wanted me to do. I was just delighted that I was involved at football at that level. And I still had my day job. I was still building houses, bespoke buildings for people, renovations, that type of thing. But on a Tuesday, Thursday and a Saturday, I went. And I gave up my own football career to be in the dugout at Livingston because I was still playing, although I was a bit older, I think it was 38 at the time. I was actually still really fit and I was still playing football at semi-professional level. And it just kind of took off from there. The club went through a really, really bad period and it got relegated to League One. And the owners at the time, or the perceived owners at the time, I can remember them giving me a big set of keys. There you go, do what you want. And everybody just vacated the building. The chief executive, one of the main sponsors, was a boy called John Ward. He was a local businessman, entrepreneur, straight, not not any criminality at all, very successful businessman. And John said, look, I'll come in and I'll give you a wee hand, Davey. He was a local sponsor. He used to sponsor the first team strips. And there was a couple of other local businesses who were in and around the club at that time. And I just started running the football club. By that point, I'd been in the club two and a half years. And I think everybody had got to know me and understood that, listen, he's actually half-intelligent guy here, he's a decent guy, like because obviously he gets stigmatised with the prison system being in prison, but people got to know me, which allowed me to develop and grow at the football club organically. And I remember I just started running the football club, and that was in League One, that was six years ago. Six years ago, I'd open, I'd close it, I would do everything, I would take training, I would help the manager pick the team, who was a friend at that point, David Hopkins, who asked me to be his assistant manager because I was just a coach. He said, I want you to be the assistant manager. I would uh, get called out at seven in the morning, seven at night, ten at night, fire alarm going off, everything. I'd phone John up and say, John, I think they're going to be short on the wages this month. And John would say, how much do you need? Oh, we need 20,000. John would transfer £20,000 into the, the bank account, the local one of the local, another local sponsor would look after the finances for obvious reasons because I still, people still had a perception of me in money laundering, which is 
crazy because I've never been charged with money laundering in my life, but I, I just kept away from the finances and I just ran the stadium and the football side of the football club. But I'd phone him up and see if we're going to be short. Uh, it's an interesting point that you make there, David, because, you know, that you've, you mentioned stigma a few times. You know, you mentioned that people overlooked your past because they recognised the man you are today. But how did you feel about these things as they kind of, you know, sometimes you'd walk into a room and maybe people you felt or had the perception or didn't you? I mean, because I read, for example, that when you were taking your badges, your UEFA badges, you had to do them in Ireland. Is there any truth in that, that you had to do them in Ireland because the Scottish system didn't appreciate? Tell me a bit about that. They never accepted me, to be fair, so I've had that stigma. But do you know what? I think I've created that stigma, so I'm happy. I'm happy for people to... I'm not happy. I can accept. I can accept that stigmatise because I've created that problem. I've made my bed and I'll lie in it. But I think it's allowed me to deal with adversity. Probably I'm mentally strong. I'm mentally resilient now. I think being in an environment where you're stigmatised from being in prison, you've got to be mentally resilient. And I actually think that's helped me to get to where I am today as a first-team football manager because if I present, you need to be in the footballing world that's thick-skinned. It's thick-skinned and mentally resilient. But I came out in 2010 and I'd done my coaching badges with the SFA. Now, you're looking at that 12 years ago, there probably wasn't as many red hoops you had to jump through at that point. So I'd done my coaching badges came into living. I'd done my C licence and came into Livingston. And the next progression was your B licence, then your A licence. And it expired in 2018. And for 2014 and 2015 and 16, the club were trying to get me to progress on to my next level of coaching badges. And they kept, I kept getting knocked back. Kept getting knocked back. Kept getting knocked back. No letting you on it. No letting you on it. Okay, so eventually... But was this simply because you had a previous conviction? It's, it's got to be. It's got to be. I don't know. It's, it's incredible, isn't it, that we talk about, you know, second chances and people turning their lives around, that they should be embracing people who can take that lived experience into an environment and show that you can change and that people can follow your lead. And you're a prime example of a man who, you know, came through a difficult childhood ended up in prison but embraced that and then used it to a positive where you were now involved in a football club etc it seems incredible I try and look at the big picture David Martindale was in prison four years ago money laundering drug dealer because that's what people think and that's what's in the papers so that's what they're going to think which is no true part of it's true he's in professional football there's probably a lot of jealousy there. Then you look at money laundering. How's he in money laundering? Or how's he in a football club? So there's probably a lot of professional jealousy there as well. Now, I never got told, I don't think life is diverse and inclusion was such big buzzwords as what they are now. Diversity inclusion has came to the throne probably through racism. The amount of airtime that racism got, I think as a society now, we're a lot more open, whereas in 2010 to 14, maybe even 15, 16, I don't think society was the same then, or especially with the powers that be within company structures, I, probably, I don't think it was the same. I've seen a massive shift in society, even in the footballing society now, transgenders, inclusion, the women's game, racism, all this type of thing, they're all 
they're all things that I think we've been highly educated on now and people know that you can't be, how would you describe that? You can't you can't go against that. Like before it was this wasn't a way of educating you. That wasn't a, 10, 15 years ago when we talk about inclusion and diversity. I'm not so sure any of us were talking about inclusion and diversity. But we do now and we all understand it. We all understand the implications. So there's a lot more education on it now, which is fantastic, which has really helped me in the latter stages of my progression at Livingston, the inclusion and diversity to become the, the first team football manager. I don't think the ethoses were there 10 years ago, eight years ago, six years ago. So I'd done my C licence anyway, tried to go on my B and they wouldn't let me. Eventually they came back three years or later. Oh, you need to, we've stopped that pathway. It doesn't work like that anymore. You need to go back and do your 1.1, your 1.2 and your 1.3. That probably took me two years to do it because I was in running Livingston Football Club. I have four year, four weeks in the summer when I'm physically not working, although I am working. But four weeks in the season is all you get off. Two weeks a day I spend with my family trying to go on holiday. Another two weeks you spend trying to recruit players and tidy up all the affairs for last season and get this season. So trying to get your badges when you're working full-time in football, especially in the role I had running the football club, it was very difficult. So I managed to go and do my 1.3, 1.1, 1.2, which then put me on to my C-licence. So I got on my C-licence. Three days into my C-licence, I got an email telling me not to come back. Don't come back, you've failed uh, PVG. Do you know the, your acceptance from the, your certificate to work with children? So I failed my PVG, but that, they should have... I failed my PVG because of my criminal record. So I got kicked off the C licence. So I was back to square one. He worked in professional football. I really needed my B licence. I can't remember the governing body I dealt with for my PVG, my certificate, to be a fit and proper person. But I wrote back to the governing body with the references and they came back and cleared me to allow me to work with children, basically. Children and young adults. That allowed me, again, I needed to find where I could go and do my licences because I felt a wee bit hard done by the SFA, if I'm honest, at that point in time. And the Irish FA accepted me onto their course. The Irish FA accepted me onto the B licence and the A licence. And I went and done that. And then I had huge trouble because somebody had complained to the Irish FA. Don't know who it was. Well, I can guess who it was. Uh, someone had complained to the Irish FA that I wasn't a fit and proper person to be doing my coaching badges. So the Irish FA, fair play to them, they phoned me up and said, look, this is going to take a wee bit longer than we thought it was going to be. Look, David, just so you know, he said, because I, I don't know how much you know about Ireland, but it was a lot paramilitary, people that have been charged with par- paramilitary offences, been to prison, came out of prison, but the Irish FA had accepted them on a coaching course, he said, look, we've got history dealing with people with criminal convictions. And I supplied all the information they asked me to supply and they cleared me to pass my B licence and my A licence. And then I got offered the job at Livingston Football Club because you need your B licence to be the football manager. They offered me the job to be the football manager and fair play the Scottish FA at that point. The Scottish FA, and this is last year we're talking about Scottish FA, passed me as a fit and proper person, but it's been a, a long, hard road to get that acceptance. But on one hand, 
I do. I, I actually do understand the stigma attached to David Martindale. I do understand that, and I'm a great believer. And I've made my bed, and I need to lie on it. I'm not asking forgiveness for people because I do understand what I done was wholly wrong. I do understand that, but you're just looking for the opportunity for acceptance. If that makes sense. It, it does. I mean, I find it quite incredible, and I would argue that the candid and honest and open way that you share your journey, David, should be embraced by those organisations to show that there are lots of kids out there who could be going on the wrong path, but it's not a bar from you becoming somebody else as you become older, regardless of the challenges or the diversions in your life that may lead to criminality, it may lead to drug taking, but you shouldn't be excluded from society regardless um, when you reach a certain point where you have changed and you'd obviously changed. So I'm glad to hear that despite all the obstacles, you were resilient enough to push past and become what you are today, which is the first team coach. And how does it sound to you when you tell people and tell yourself that you're the first team coach of a Scottish Premier League club who are doing really well in the league. You know, I heard you, Drew, you know, the big games, big clubs, big responsibilities. And what I admire most and I think should be inspirational to, you know, want to be footballers who could be getting distracted or young kids who think that there's no future for them, that your story is is inspirational and you should be championed rather than you know, um, having to face challenges, even though you accept it. And I don't think you should accept it in the way that you do sort of understand that these obstacles because of your past have made your progress more difficult. Of course, there has to be checks and balances, but people should never discriminate against someone because of the colour of their skin, their previous convictions, their, their locality, their regional, their gender, you know, and that's where we are today. Thank you how I talk. How I kind of rationale with my mind, if that makes sense, is the wall I've got to climb is a wee bit bigger than most. But if you look at the colour of someone's skin, that wasn't their choice. So I had a choice and I made the wrong choice. So part of me feels that it's okay for me to be punished to a certain degree, whereas somebody's born a certain colour, that's a disgrace. Well, there's being punished... There's being punished, isn't there, David, for the crime that you committed, took responsibility for, did your time. It's one thing to be punished at the time for the mistakes we make, but it's unfair to be continuously punished or sidelined or discriminated against because of your past mistakes. I don't think you'll find very many people in society who have not made mistakes. Not everyone's got caught. Not everyone's done something as serious, but we all have our our skeletons in the closet, if you like. So it's wrong for people to judge. What? What? Let me ask. What? What? What does the future hold in terms of? I mean, obviously, you're running a football club. You're in charge of a, a, a successful team, and I wish you all the best in you know being successful. But in terms of your past experience and how you use that in the world of football, like talking to me today, I think is is inspirational because people hear this and they think, oh, I didn't know that. Now I do. How interesting. I mean, what what do you see your beyond football is what I'm saying, beyond football or within football? What do you see your legacy as? I don't know so much about a legacy, but if I can help one person, we all say this, we all say the same things. If you can help one person, one person can listen to this. I think, over the last 18 months since my story came out, I've got, my, like, Livingston Football Club, if they 
never gave me the opportunity and never stood by me because they got they got a lot of stick for it, a lot of stick for the first six years. I, I mean, a lot of stick. They stopped by me and let me go on my run in the football club. It wasn't until I got made, they said, we're taking, we're doing it, we're doing it. Because I couldn't be the manager officially to the SFA stage you were fit and proper. So they said, we're doing it, let's do it. And we, for the first 14 games, when I took over as a manager, we were unbeaten. And I think the media just picked the story up and it was it just became such a positive story. It became such a positive story that I think the SFA at that point, fair play to them, but the SFA had to make me a fit and proper person because there was so much media interest in this story. So legacy, I don't know, I think you've just got to, you've just got to try and put your past behind you. But the biggest, the biggest thing that I came out of this with, and it seems so simple, is Actions have consequences. I never, I genuinely never cared about my actions having a consequence. What it meant directly to the people and indirectly to other people. Now I think every action I've got has a reaction. And always before I make decisions, I think about the consequences of my decisions. I can quite honestly say before 2004, I don't think I gave that a second thought. Or my moral compass would talk me out of why it was okay to do it. Whereas I don't let that happen. And there's also been a massive reset in my mindset where I now know what's important in my life. My family. My family is hugely important to me in my life. Whereas probably before it was my, my group of friends. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have a group of friends and they shouldn't be important to you. But they, having a nice watch, having a nice car, having designer clothes and being with my friends were probably the mere materialistic side of life probably took more value in what it did growing up for my parents and my brother and my sister, my cousins, my aunties, my uncles, whereas now I always, always put family first. Is there something for young aspiring footballers to learn from our conversation? Because I, I often wonder that lots of young aspiring academy players or foundation players or wannabe footballers, you know, they go through an experience, maybe like you, where they get an injury which disrupts their progress in football. And, you know, we know a very few actually go on to become professional footballers so they can easily be distracted. Is there not something in the fact that you have a lived experience that can shape some of these young footballers? So this is what really beats me, that when they say that you at some point were not a fit and proper person to do the job, of course you are, because you can get into the heads of lots of these young kids who could quite easily be distracted if their career doesn't go the way they want. I'm what to do a wee bit more more work in the prison system, Sky, Skyer, thinking about, well, I've been into Adiwell Prison, done a couple of talks on that, talks with prisoners, but it was during COVID, so... The amount of people that you can physically talk to is very, very limited. So we're looking at doing that on a bigger stage and a couple of hundred prisoners speaking about speaking to them directly. Sky are looking at maybe coming in and following that because I think the more media coverage you can get on that, it's going to help. It's going to help society maybe understand it a little bit more. But there might be other people out there that can give up time to help these people in situations. So that's one thing that I would like to do a wee bit more of is speaking about those. I do think a modern day footballer has probably got a lot more temptation what a David Martindale did have. Now you've got gambling. Gambling's at the fingertips. I've seen it in football. I can speak about I can speak about what my life choice has done, but you can still go down the same road via a different path, via drugs, actually drug addiction, alcohol addiction. 
and gambling addiction, that can still lead you to the same place that David Martindale ended up at. But again, if you want to flip it, there's still you can still turn that into a positive. You can still turn that into a positive. So I think there's a, mo- a lot more obstacles in young players' ways these days. There's a lot more obstacles falling through gambling and stuff like that, which is I had to go in the bookie and make a bet. So I couldn't be in the bookie 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can be in a, you can be gambling 24 hours, seven days a week now on your phone. on your. So I think there's a lot more obstacles in place and a lot more pitfalls for young footballers. So albeit it might be a different path you take, but I think they all lead to the same place. Final question from from me. I mean, you, you you know, you said once this story broke or the media took an interest, luckily it worked in your favour. But you could quite easily have chosen the option where you quietly just get on with the job, not speak to the media, not share your journey, your story, your experiences. Why do you think that talking to the media, talking to journalists, coming on podcasts like this is important? I think it's important because I think you've got to be open and honest. And if one person has spoke, pre- touched on it briefly, I think it's important that people probably get to know me a little bit. Well, that's the story. Instead of putting my name in Google and there's six different versions of stories, I'll, I'll tell you the story. I'll tell you the absolute truth. And I think, I hope it resonates with other people that are maybe in similar positions or who can maybe see they're not far away from being where David Martindale potentially, uh, where David Martindale was. So you're hoping that your story can inspire people. I got a lot of letters from people in prison and I answered every single one of them, sent them, like, try to help them as much as I can. People just saying it's nice to see that when you do actually come out of prison, there's a positive sometimes because a lot of prison, and I don't know the exact statistics, but it's reoffending. You're very, very, and I know a lot of the people that I had close relationships with in prison or back in prison or they're going to be going back to prison. And that makes me sad. It makes me sad. I've not kept in touch with these people, but you read it in the papers, you'll Google their name and they've been charged with offences and you know they're going to be back in prison or you speak to, like, I still speak to two or three of the prison guards that I spent a lot of my... Um, jail sentence with because they're massive football fans and they might be sending me a wee text and say oh X, X, Y and Z are back in prison, they were asking for you Davey, things like that so you know, so you know that people are back in prison, But so I think it's important to highlight that there, you can be a success you can be a success and you can change your life, you can change your life there's different ways of doing that I think academia was a the turning point in my life, that was the turning point in my life, and I do understand it, maybe not, that's not maybe for everybody, but then you're looking at employees, Livingston Football Club, here at what University, guys like yourself, that are telling these story and hoping it's leading to a more open, diverse society, where people that have been in prison can potentially go and get a job. What What does second chance mean to you then? It's changed my life, it's changed my life, I've married now, I've got a young daughter who's nine years old, it's changed my life since I've come into the full-time footballing environment. Like It's taken over my life. It's become the most important thing along with my family and life. It's changed my life. I can't explain it any more simple than that. It's changed my life. It's given me a purpose in life. And albeit I've got a wife and kids, I don't mean it like that, but a self-fulfillment, a working career. I'm 
I'm playing a part in society, I'm paying tax. Like, I feel important now. I feel important now. I'm doing things properly. I don't go to bed at night thinking, are the police going to come and charge me? Are they going to kick my door down? I don't go to bed. It's not my last thought. It's not my first thought. I'm actually an important member of society. And I know that I'm going to be here for my, well, hopefully health, everything going well. But I know I'm going to be here for my daughter to support my daughter. Whereas I've got a son who's 24. I missed a large part of David's life because I was in prison at a crucial stage in David's life. And probably the 10 years before, um, after he was born, before I got in prison, you're probably, the harsh reality of it is if you're involved in criminality, at some point you're going to go to prison. At some point. And I always say this to people, remember the police only need to get lucky once. You need to be lucky all the time. But the chances are you're going to go to prison if you choose to be involved in criminality. Such an important point, David. So it's, it's, it's so inspiring to hear your story. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your journey and setting some of the records straight. But being so candid and honest is, for me, the most important thing when we're talking about these sorts of issues. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, thank you very much. And thanks for giving me the opportunity, Raphael. It was nice to speak to you. What I really admired listening to David is how he didn't allow the obstacles put in his way to stop his ambition, to earn his degree or take on the responsibility of managing a top tier football club, sharing how mistakes can impact your life and those around you is not always easy, especially when you're in a position of such influence. But it goes without saying that people who make mistakes can learn from them and use that insight to teach others so much. I want to take this moment to thank you, the listener, for sharing your comments about this podcast. Keep those comments coming. Here's one from the Apple Podcast Rate and Review comments. And it comes from a guy called FootballGo007. And he said, and I quote, These podcasts are some of the best you will ever listen to. A really good insight to people's private lives you would never hear about if it wasn't for Raphael. Unquote. Well, thanks a lot, Football Goo 007. And I like the tag. This one's from Chessie13. And she wrote, really enjoyed this podcast. Really helping with my university course of criminology and psychology. Really an eye-opening podcast helping me understand different sides of a case. Unquote. Glad it's giving you an alternative perspective, Chessie. And finally, this message from Liam, and I quote, I came across this by following Raphael Rowe on Instagram. I got into the first episode and so much of this resonated with me. What I gathered from it is that we all need to be each other's light in the darkness. I reached out to Raphael after listening and he was kind enough to get back to me with some very kind words. One prominent point that sticks out is direction. You give a man direction and it gives him purpose. You give him purpose, you give him a breath in life. Yes, maybe some aren't able to be helped in the way others can, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop trying. Unquote. Liam, that resonates with my conversation in this episode. Thanks for your message. It was powerful. 
I appreciate that you find these interviews inspirational and insightful. And so I want to hear from more of you. So send me your messages and your comments and I'll pick some and quote them in our podcast. Now, please share this episode with your friends, family and colleagues. And if you want to follow the show for updates about new episodes, just click on the subscribe button. You can also be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments. This is an independent podcast. I mean, we are doing this out of passion, not pay. But we do need support to pay for the production. So please, if you want to make a small donation, click on the support link in the description at the end. And if you want to connect, drop the show a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva and our guest booker is Sophie Warner. This episode was produced by the Second Chance Podcast and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.